Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast, rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions leading the way in green and sustainable finance. And as part of this podcast series, we'll be speaking to and learning from some of the leading global figures in the field. My name's Rosie Alsop. I am Communications Director at We Are Guernsey. That's the promotional agency for Guernsey's finance industry. And today I'm delighted to be speaking to Peter Backman. He's Managing Director at Gresham House PLC. Dating back to 1857, Grisham House is a specialist alternative asset manager listed on the London Stock Exchange. With more than £6 billion of assets under management, it's devoted to sustainable investing. A range of investment strategies are deployed by the firm, with in-house expertise focused on forestry, housing, sustainable infrastructure, renewable energy and battery storage. So today, among other topics in the climate finance space, we'll be discussing the launch of Gresham House's latest sustainable fund and exploring its aims and objectives. Um, welcome, Peter. Hi, Rosie. Great to be here. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's wonderful to have you with us. So to kick off, um, I'd like to uh, introduce you to our listeners. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself, um, your background and your career to date? Okay, I'll do my best and I'll try to, I guess, pick up the interesting bits and, and, and you tell me and stop me at any point <laughs> if you think I'm rambling on. But uh, look, I, I guess going way back when, uh, I started out um, my career about 21 years ago in investment banking, like I suppose quite a lot of people in the asset management world. And I started out in Australia and at the time I was uh, at a financial services group called Challenger where actually we're doing quite a lot of um corporate finance, M&A type advisory work. And in the early 2000s, the, the main industry that we're doing quite a lot of work with was the wine industry. Um, so we ended up um, doing quite a lot with some of the big majors. And off the back of that, inter- those interactions, we ended up setting up uh, an infrastructure fund uh, called the Challenger Wine Fund, which you know, from that, we then grew up to be one of the largest owners of vineyards and wine infrastructure in the world. And, and in fact, my slight claim to fame is that um, the one of the businesses that we backed was um, a business called Delegates, which ultimately created um, the Oyster Bay wine brand off the back of the vineyards that we built with them in Hawke's Bay and Marlborough. Um, so you probably Bay. It's delicious. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you probably had Oyster Bay. So that, that I, can, I can say I've had a very small hand in getting that off the ground. And you know, really from there, uh, within Challenger, we saw that as a platform to go and start to do more infrastructure and and I helped create um, the, the real assets and infrastructure division. And from that, we started to do quite a range of other quite typical infrastructure assets like mobile phone towers, um, water companies and the like. But we also did some pretty esoteric things uh, like alpaca farming and you know, paper processing mills and the like. So you're yeah, really quite a lot of infrastructure. And, and from that, it was a great experience. And I, I thankfully managed to accelerate my career very quickly and progressed. Yeah, I was a main, main board invitee quite regularly. And at 26, 27, that was brilliant. But I guess I thought, well, where do I go next? And I traveled quite a lot to the UK on holiday. And, and from that, I just felt, look, I had to come over. It was a, obviously a great place to be. But also from a career perspective, when I was leaving Australia at that time, infrastructure was actually a really big asset class. Um, so you know, typically, 
infrastructure was north of 20% in most pension fund portfolios, whereas in the UK at the time, it was typically less than 1%. So I just felt that there had to be this opportunity to, to take what I'd been doing in Australia and, and work in the UK. And, and I really arrived in 2005, 2004, sorry, and no job, but just felt like I'd be able to find something interesting to do. Um, thankfully, I managed to find a few different um, offers, but I ended up choosing a relatively small shop at the time called Secondary Market Infrastructure Fund or SWIF. Uh, and they'd just done a buyout from Abbey National and Babcock and Brown to create this asset manager focus on the PFI PPP market. Uh, and I was one of the first employees, well, I was the first in front office employee at the time. And you know, really from that point when I joined, we had about 18 assets and through the various incarnations of the fund, we ended up with 118 assets or about £5 billion worth of capital value of everything from roads, hospitals, schools and the like across the UK and Europe. And yeah, that was a hugely uh, invaluable experience for me um, being involved in so many deals. I, I personally led uh, or was very closely involved in about 82 of those investments over that time. So huge learning experience. Uh, I was also fortunate to be made a partner before I was 30. So it was a great, great experience um, as well to get so involved in the management of a fund like that. Uh, and then we also then had a, a brilliant opportunity in about 2007 to exit that fund because um, our lead investor, Star Capital, was uh, coming to the end of their fund life. And so we sold um, Smith in 2008, 2007, sorry. Uh, we sold it for just under a billion pounds and generated an author of four times multiple for our lead investor. So everyone was very happy. Uh, we sold the fund into Land Securities. You, you might be familiar with them. They're a very large property company here in Europe. And you know, from that, yeah, they really wanted to start looking at, at renewables as well as infrastructure. So that was my segue in about 2008 into the renewables world. Uh, and I continued to do infrastructure, but then also led the team that looked at almost anything that we could be doing to help create a more sustainable future. Um, so yeah, from that point, I then spent uh, a couple of years within that land securities trillion business. And then uh, I was approached to actually go and set up a, a, a new business in predominantly waste to energy, but also around the renewable space. Um, so from that point, about 2010, 11, I joined up with a couple other people and we created our own business, a business called EIDC, where uh, we actually developed assets and, and also invested our own capital into those projects. So, yeah, I had five, nearly six years as a developer, which also was quite um, quite a illuminating experience. Having sat on the other side of the fence for so many years, it was actually quite interesting and, and you, know, you pretty much learned all the tricks of the trade sitting as a developer in those projects. And yeah, that, again, was hugely invaluable experience in terms of my learning. Uh, and then during that time with EIDC, I started doing some work with Scottish Equity Partners or SEP. Um, and off the back of that, we helped ideate, raise, um, invest, and then manage a fund called the Environmental Capital Fund or ECF at SEP. Um, and that was looking to invest into a range of renewables and environmental infrastructure. Uh, that went really well. And, and in the end, we sold that fund in 2019. And and generated a north of three times multiple. And actually, we think we, we got to a, a, well, the, the best performing fund of its vintage. So that was, I, I guess, yeah, a really great part of what I've been doing in my formal career. And then in about 2018, I started to think actually renewables are great, but 
yeah, there's a whole lot of other problems that we've got uh, environmentally and societally that renewables don't fix. And I guess that was the light bulb moment for me that made me think, actually, I've got to go and try to do something more than other than just renewables. And I'd already started to back um, an early stage business at that point. It was a, a great professor called Dr. Josh Brogy, who had this idea to really try to democratize education. Um, so in about 2018, I started investing my own money into uh, his business called Wolf. And yeah, by the time we got to the end of ECF in 2019, I thought actually uh, at one point I was going to retire. Um, so that was kind of like a, a, a grand notion. But yeah, I'd already started to work with Wolf. And then through that interaction, I started to get approached on a few other early stage businesses. So um, over 2019, 2020, I just started to do quite a lot more of my own time and money into really early stage sustainability companies. And I felt that they're the sort of businesses that really need the most help. But it was probably around that 2019, 2020 that um, I'd been speaking to a you know, brilliant entrepreneur, a guy called Jasper Smith. And he was saying, look, you know, what you're doing individually is probably quite interesting and quite impactful, but wouldn't you have a lot more impact if you had some more money behind you? Uh, and that again was one of those sort of light bulb moments when I felt, yeah, actually, I, I probably do need to think about how I do something around that. And it was about that time that actually um, Tony and Rupert from Gresham House called and, and said, look, you know, we've got this platform, uh, the Visa Fund. Um, you know, would you be interested in helping us manage that? And yeah, really, that was the point for me that I felt that actually, if they're prepared to move the strategy, um, as far down the sustainability path as I felt that it could and, and it should, that I was really quite interested. And, and that was the point where, yeah, I, I joined Gresham in June 2020. And, and since then, it's been a, a great experience. And, and yeah, we've done quite a lot. So I guess just to sum up that long-winded background, yeah, I've been doing this now for 21 years. I've invested in over 200 infrastructure assets and sustainability companies. And yeah, it's been an incredible journey. And I guess the great thing about what I do is that I really love it. And you know, what we're doing at, at Gresham with our beast of strategies it really do have some meaningful impact. And I, I do genuinely feel that, yeah, we're doing something good, which um, I, can, I can feel yeah, the enthusiasm cool. in, in your voice as, as you're telling me. And it sounds like you've had a really fascinating and diverse um, career journey. Now, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about Gresham House in, in, a, in a second, Peter. But um, before we do that, I wanted to talk to you a bit about COP26. So mm -hmm. um, for us, it's always interesting to find out how our podcast guests feel about the event um, and, uh, you know, get their views on that. So I'd like to ask you, was there anything, um, uh, uh, you know, did you think it was a success? Do you think there's anything that COP26 missed that you think um, could possibly be addressed at COP27 in Egypt? Look, okay. COP26 at well, I think whenever they come around, they're great in that they shine a light on the problems that we face, particularly around the environment. And I think if nothing else, that's quite a useful moment. But I do really feel like they missed a chance <clears throat> with COP26 and that they've been teed up you know, really off the back of Paris to be able to come back and say, look, yeah, all the countries are signing up to a, a globally synchronized approach to tackling this. Uh, and if anything, for me, it, almost felt like at COP26, we went backwards from that. Like people were rowing back left, right and centre from 
these 1.5 degree type commitments and it just felt like actually we were a lot further away from perhaps a unified carbon tax as well which i think is probably the only way that will ultimately tra- change behavior so yeah, i was a little bit frustrated I, i'm sorry to say I, I would like to be a bit more positive about cop but um yeah that that was probably the enduring message i probably would take out of that and i i desperately hope that you yeah, going into COP27 and, and also COP15 on nature that we can really start to take a bit more of a joined up approach and um, yeah, hopefully find a way to really tackle the problems that we face in a unified way. I think you're probably not alone in, in feeling um, frustrations at, at the eventual outcome of COP26 uh, at all. So if we talk about Gresham House, can you tell me about the history um, a little bit more? Now, I know that it dates back to the mid-19th century, but um, can you tell me how and why and when sustainability uh, became sort of enveloped in in the business model? Yeah, so look, the Gresham was technically founded in 1857 by um, Thomas Gresham, who was quite a prominent uh, chap in English society at the time and it basically went through various incarnations but the Gresham that you see before you today really came to life about seven years ago when uh, Tony Dalwood our CEO and Rupert Robinson our MD of the asset management division really saw what was at the time a very sleepy investment trust I think it, it had less than 20 million pounds of assets and and saw that as a platform to to basically create a specialized alternatives asset manager uh, and and you know, it was from that point that they thought, okay, let, let's go and build something up that, that wasn't there before. And really right from the start, they've always thought sustainability was a, a really key plank of their strategy. Uh, and you know, one of the first businesses that they bought into um, was a forestry business. And, and from that, they've now built Europe's largest actually the UK's largest um, forestry business. And actually, I think we're about the fifth or sixth largest forestry business in the world with in total north of three billion pounds of AUM just on our forestry side. So sustainability very much has been at the core of Gresham House and and really through a series of acquisitions and organic growth, uh, Gresham now has north of six and a half billion pounds of capital spread across, I guess, um, a number of strategies, particularly on the real asset side that all focus in on this sustainability thematic. Uh, so yeah, I've already talked about forestry. Uh, my fund actually helps seed the Energy Storage Fund PLC, or the ticker is GRID, which is listed on on the London Stock Exchange, and that's now grown up to be Europe's largest battery storage platform with north of 400 megawatts worth of batteries. And yeah, it's it's valued at um, from an enterprise value perspective, yeah, 750 odd billion pounds worth of batteries. So again, you're really key player in helping to decarbonize the energy system and that you can't run renewables without batteries to deal with their intermittencies. And then beyond that, we've got um, affordable and social housing, which is a a big part of our strategy. Um, So we've got um, a number of listed and unlisted funds tackling that. And then we've got um, quite a large pool of solar and wind assets within our business. And then my division, which really has sustainability as as the core of everything that it does. So. Yeah, look, the the business has really grown up, and you know, I personally wouldn't have joined Gresham if I didn't feel like they're really aligned as as I am on the sustainability angle, and and it's that authenticity of what Gresham does, and that 
this really is genuinely part of everything that we do that I think allows me to do what I really am passionate about, but also empowers a business to, to really try to tackle these big social and environmental issues. So in terms of your investment focuses for Gresham House, um, you've mentioned forestry, housing, battery storage. What are your priorities in your real asset investment strategies and your public and private equities? Yeah, so in terms of the, the real assets, I've, I think we've, we've covered those. Um, yeah, obviously, forestry is probably our largest AUM strategy. That's uh, another key area of growth we're going to be doing uh, uh, an international fund and, and really our UK funds are building on their, their track record and success in, in forestry management in this country. And, uh, yeah, they've got, um, yeah, very, very attractive IRRs for essentially they've been doing this for now 30 or 40 years. So that, that will continue to grow. Um, the battery storage fund platform is, is looking to grow as well. They'll be looking to raise more capital over the next year or so. Uh, and also looking overseas because they've got yeah, they've created the largest platform here and that gives them a, yeah, a, a very good advantage in terms of scaling up. Uh, on, the, on the housing side, we're doing quite a lot in, in affordable housing. Um, so we've got a number of strategies that are growing out of that. Uh, and that's, that's a sector that yeah, we're seeing quite a lot of interest from institutional investors as they, they try to capture the, the moment. There's a lot of people that have probably missed the, the buy to rent market. Um, and so this new shared ownership avenue is, is an area of growth and, and yeah we see a lot of opportunities there but um that's probably the real asset side and, and i can talk about my strategy in a minute on the strategic equities so the that that side of the business uh we've obviously done quite a lot in the venture capital trust sector so we last year we bought a business called mobius um and mobius managed four of the top five performing vct funds in in uk history so great track record there and and really looking to try to scale that up further and uh we uh, we have a, on the strategic equity side we have the barons meet um platform as well on the vct side and they've just recently done a very successful fundraising and mobius did one towards the back end of last year where they fully subscribed it in other 20 in under 24 hours so yeah we can see quite a lot of growth still in that area uh and then in the public equity side we're doing quite a lot in micro cap small cap type um, funds and and again building on the track record of Ken Wooden and his team, where they are typically the top performing, if not the yeah, top top quartile performing fund managers in in the UK. Wow! So Gresham House has chosen Guernsey on more than one occasion to launch a fund, and you recently launched the British Sustainable Infrastructure Fund Two LP, which secured a hundred million pounds first close with the assistance of Guernsey law firm Carrie Olson. Peter, can you tell me the aims and the objectives of that fund and if there's been any updates since your first close? Yeah, look, I, I, thank you for that. I, I'm, I'm pleased to say that that was the first close which we achieved in August uh, last year. And, and really the goal of trying to uh, our fundraising last year was to focus solely on our existing LPs because for BCIF1, we had to uh, close that with, with a, a few of our LPs not able to invest quite as much as they'd hoped. So the first close was very much around focusing on existing LPs and we managed to get two over the line in time because at the time we had one of our five businesses needing access to capital a bit faster. Uh, and then I'm pleased to say that since then we got to a, a further close uh, at the end of last year. So we're now at 150 million pounds of, of capital and, and the goal this year is to very much open up the fundraising out to 
a wider group of potential LPs. <clears throat> and you know, from that, we'll be looking to target a, a 500 million pound um, close over the next 12 months. In terms of the fund strategy itself, we are unashamedly an impact fund where we are really trying to have a direct impact on the big environmental and societal challenges. You know, we actually define sustainable infrastructure as profitable real asset-based solutions to these key environmental and societal challenges. So that's, that's how we think of ourselves. And, and very much we are trying to reflect the fact that technology can only do so much, right? We, we do fundamentally need new products and services, and many of those can't be delivered without some sort of physical new infrastructure. And so that's really where we come in. So we're looking to try to invest in new innovative real asset-based solutions to those problems and, and really try to find solutions that ultimately create great financial returns because you know, our view is that there are these huge challenges out there and I'd say humanity sustainability is the single biggest challenge we face. But in our view, these challenges also bring hugely potential um, big opportunities. And, it, and it's really from that we've taken those challenges and we've tried to distill that down now into six areas or target subsectors where we believe these innovative real asset-based solutions can have the biggest potential impact and, and therefore create the biggest financial reward. Um, just diving quickly into those six areas, those, those are things like resource efficiency and, and fundamentally we believe that the use of our finite resources has got to change. Like farming as an example is one that, really is, um, uses way too much land, water, and chemicals. Uh, and to that end, we've got a brilliant business called Fisher Farms, which is doing something we think you know, fundamentally transformative in how we're ultimately going to grow our food. And as an example there, we can grow in four acres what it would otherwise take between 1,000 and 2,000 acres to grow out in the field. That means yeah. we use it less than 1% of the land for, uh, for food growth, which we think is pretty cool. And then we yeah. use... 98% less water, we use no chemicals and pesticides. Food security is obviously drastically improved because of the fact that we're producing in the country. And then the other really great benefit of vertical farming is that it, in the way that we grow and harvest, we get typically a 14-day plus shelf life extension, which is, is brilliant for you because, Rosie, I'm sure you've had that disappointing salad bag that goes off after a couple of days. <laughs> You've been in my fridge, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, unfortunately, it's been in my fridge too. Uh, but, yeah, well, that, that's also amazing for the retailers. Um, so for them, food waste is a massive issue. Uh, and for them to be able to, to really take that off the table and, and fundamentally change the, the way in which you know, food lasts yeah, is really great for them. So. Yeah, we're seeing huge take up from the supermarkets on that because we can grow produce at the same price as full grown crops, but yet we have all these amazing benefits. And that's, uh, to me, a great example of how the impacts that we're creating can actually also then give us this quasi monopolistic position in the market and therefore a lot of cash flow certainty and create that infrastructure like position in the market. That's resource efficiency. The next area that we tackle is um, decarbonization. Um, so that's probably the most obvious of our sectors, and that's really around helping facilitate the energy transition. Uh, the next area that we focus in on is around what we call digital inclusion. Um, so that's, that's really um, gigabit broadband connectivity. So essentially trying to give people good internet. But yeah, as we've seen through COVID and, and the fact that we're doing this video call and, and the like, yeah, broad, good broadband really is at the heart of everything. 
you know, in, in terms of remote working, remote learning, remote health, even some advanced farming techniques need and rely on good broadband. Um, so we think that what we call digital inclusion is very much at the heart of everything that we do. The, the next area that we focus in on is around waste. And actually, we see that there's a huge potential to go and turn waste into something valuable. Uh, and, a, and a good example of that is our business. We've got one site up in Middlesbrough with a business called Waste Knot, where actually what we do is we, we convert about 300,000 tonnes of non-organic commercial and industrial waste and turn it into a pellet that can be used to replace coal in the cement and steel industries. Wow. And, and you might not think that has that much impact, but actually our single plant up there can potentially create up to about 668,000 tonnes of CO2 savings every year. That's like taking about 300,000 cars off the road from one plant. And that's just, that's just the tip of the iceberg in that's terms incredible. of what that can do. And you know, we're seeing huge pull from the auto manufacturers, the, the cement makers, because their customers are saying they need low carbon solutions. And, and today there hasn't really been a, a tangible way to do that. So I think that's another great example where our strategy is really taking practical solutions to these challenges and, and creating real impacts. Then the, the final two areas of the six that we target that perhaps are a little bit different to other strategies. So one is around health and education. And you know, we genuinely believe that there is scope to tackle um, better provision of, for example, early years um, dementia care yeah, in, in the UK. That isn't very well catered for. And we typically only do quite palliative care in, in terms of dementia. And and similarly with autism, again, that doesn't tend to happen until school age and we're seeing some opportunities around autism care in, in uh, some early years learning settings. And then similarly, we're, we're also quite interested in the nursery sector and we're currently looking at an opportunity around uh, essentially trying to transform early years education. So again, we think that can be quite impactful on some of those other harder to reach sustainable development goals in terms of health and education. And they really have a big impact on mental health, which as you're aware, um, has some huge costs and some huge impacts on our lives. And then the final of the areas that we target is what we call regeneration or essentially nature-based solutions. Um, and I'm not sure, Rosie, if you saw the, the research done by these Oxford scientists a couple of years ago, but basically they said that if we use nature-based solutions globally, it could potentially have a, a carbon benefit of about 10 gigatons per year in terms of carbon savings, which yeah, that is like mind-bending levels of um, carbon removal. And, and in fact, that's the emissions of the US, the whole of the EU and Japan combined is about 10 gigatons. So yeah, we have to find new ways to harness that. And to that end, we've essentially created what we think is a whole new investment class, building large-scale habitat banks where we can then um, create biodiversity credits, which can be used by developers to meet their obligations under the new Environment Act. So that's, that's hopefully a very quick sort of snapshot of some of the things that we're targeting within my area and our fund and, and hopefully some pretty uh, interesting and impactful things that, yeah, it, the, the key thing I probably should also mention is that in all of these, you know, we actually think that the impact drives great financial returns. And I think that's probably the other thing I just want everyone to sort of come away with in that in the past, impact probably meant having to sacrifice financial returns. But you know, we think it's actually the opposite these days very much. It's the impact that drives great financial returns. And, and if anything, 
this impact will, I think, ultimately create much more valuable long-term assets and that yeah, we do think that there is a risk for things that aren't sustainable, that they'll get additional taxation, they'll become stranded assets and or at worst, both. So yeah, either way you look at it, I think sustainability is really the, the biggest value driver that we can push into the assets that we look at. As well as the direct benefits of investing in sustainable infrastructure like the vertical farming, sustainable investing tends to also have secondary benefits for the world. Could you outline some of the secondary benefits that you expect to see from investing sustainably? Look, I think uh, there are huge different levels of secondary benefits. And I think there's obviously the ones that I've kind of touched on earlier that are quite direct and obvious. But let me just, I guess, start to sort of wander through some of the other secondary ones, which I think are really cool. Um, probably the, the first place I'll start is in around a vertical farming business and and. For example, we had this great visit from the people from the John Inner Centre at our um, farm up in Norfolk a couple of weeks ago, and they started to talk about some of the things that they're really interested in with vertical farming. Examples of things they talked about, yeah, huge focus on the ability to create amazing crop improvement. So our ability to create and mimic extreme weather conditions, they thought was huge in terms of what they could do in, in improving crop resilience and, and future crop developments. Then another really interesting one was that actually the UK has uh, created an environment where genome editing is possible. Um, and actually they see what vertical farming could do is to enable the facility to really go out and do proper gene discovery. Um, and, and they talked about there's this um, natural um, phenomenon called neutrogenics, which is what happens in the wild to actually create these great new genes, which creates resilience and, and they're the sorts of things that are really, I guess, driven by what vertical farming could do. Then other some ones that I'd never even possibly thought about, they're really talking about what it could do for plant-based medicines and the ability to actually iterate plants to potentially implant within them certain things. And they're actually talking about putting the mRNA vaccine within plants and then potentially putting in other benefits and other vitamins and you know, essentially creating you know, food as healthcare. Uh, which, yeah, again, I'd not really thought about. And they then started to develop out into where food as healthcare could potentially help to start to address some of the diabetes issues that we have. And, and yeah, diabetes in this country costs about £17 billion per year in terms of impact. So if we could do that through our plants, that, that obviously could be pretty amazing. Uh, they even talked about pharmaceuticals and, and how this could create adjuvants, which are, are things that help create reactions within these um, the pharmaceutical elements. And, and then the final one probably is a bit more obvious around um, medicine really as sick care. And, and they think the plants that could be um, yeah, cultivated through vertical farms and the ability and speed with which they could be done is, is quite impactful. So I think that gives you a bit of an example of some of the things that uh, vertical farming could do in terms of the, I suppose, the health environment, which then we think have huge benefits in terms of the overall um, pharmaceutical sector it also has life sciences impact and the ability for some of the life sciences business to really develop and go quickly uh just whilst i'm sticking on vertical farming the obviously other one i talked about the water um benefits of vertical farming but it is probably just worth mentioning that you know water is still a very fresh water that is still an extremely scarce resource uh and when you look at places like china they've got 20 odd percent of the world's population and and 
around 7% of the world's water. So, yeah, there's got to be things that, you know, this that the water benefits will ultimately come to come to fruition. And I think there have been wars fought over water in the past. And I do think that that's another future area of conflict. So we think vertical farming can help the healthcare sector, our own health, but then also hopefully avert some future wars over water. Looking at some other secondary benefits, uh, yeah, we talked quite a lot about our habitat bank businesses, and and yeah, we do think that siting and creating these large habitat banks out into places where local planners want them will also then have a secondary benefit in terms of the housing stock that gets built nearby, and we think that is going to really help the amenity of those homes that are built. Um, having woodland meadows, grass and meadows wetlands and the like, I think is a lovely place to be located nearby. And we think that long-term that will have a really big benefit in terms of the overall town planning opportunities uh, across the country. And then probably the final one that I, I thought of in terms of secondary benefits were, you know, we're currently looking at a, a really cool nursery business. Uh, so early years, so yeah, kids from yeah, basically from infants through to toddlers and what we've seen there is a business that actually is really focused on the curriculum that they they provide to the children and, and really trying to create children that are adjusted to the the worldview and and really have a good understanding of the need to be more sustainable, uh, the need to use solar, the need to to put their waste into recycling, and it, it's you know, some of those things as well that you know we think that by investing in those sort of businesses that really create change that will ultimately have a longer term trickle down effect in terms of overall quality of education and the type of people that we're bringing forward into our um, society. Hopefully that's given you a bit of a sense of some wide ranging secondary benefits that come out of the sorts of things that we do within our primary investments in this sustainable infrastructure field. It's um, absolutely fascinating and, and it's really good to get that breakdown from you about the, um, it's, it's not just about sustainable investing, it's about these secondary benefits um, and I, I'm absolutely fascinated to learn uh, more about that. I hadn't really thought about it in that way before. Mm. So a lot of these secondary benefits seem to tie into the idea of ensuring that as well as investing in sustainability, we also want to level up and ensure a just transition. So, Peter, can you talk me through some of the key issues that our listeners should be aware of when financing that transition? Look, I think the just transition is is all about really trying to help people that are coming out of the, the industries that need to change and need to probably, particularly around the fossil fuel industry, need to find new careers. And to me, the just transition is about trying to create new industries that have a long-term future. And I think two good examples of that within what we're doing are our businesses in the digital inclusion space. Um, yeah, and yeah, as an example there, we've got um, three businesses, all of which now have direct training academies. Uh, one of them, Telcom, has this brilliant um platform called Recode, where we're taking, it's basically a boot camp. It's like a 12-week course where we take people from almost every other industry and give them a whole new career as a fiber engineer. Um, as an example, we, we did a, an intake finish last year where we had two ex-prison officers. We had a range of people from quite diverse backgrounds, but actually they've now become fiber engineers. And, and we think that's a great example of you know, genuinely trying to give people new careers that will have a future. Like we're building 
millions of kilometers of fiber in this country, there's going to be a huge demand for highly skilled trained engineers in that sector. And so I think that's a great example of helping people on this just transition. The other great example is around our vertical farming business, where again, we're, we're actively training up now vertical farming technicians to help us manage our, our physical vertical farms. And uh, I think that's that's a sector that has huge potential. Like in the UK, for example, we think there could be four to 500 plus vertical farms just trying to deal with some of the produce that we import in this country. Um, you know, potentially there's the, there's a market for thousands of those vertical farms just in the UK and, and therefore there's the potential for thousands and thousands of new jobs in that space. Um, just as just to give you some facts across our portfolio, it, over over the last twelve months within our visa strategies, we've we've now employed about five hundred new people, uh, which most of which are genuinely new careers in in things as I said like around fiber and vertical farming, soon to be in things like our our pellet waste businesses. You know, these are typically also um, assets that are located outside of the, the southeast. And that's the other thing that I think our strategy our strategy lends itself quite well to is that because we typically target the sub fifty million pound assets, we are doing assets outside of London and and some of those more typically invested areas, which again also I think helps with this leveling up agenda. Because I think that the pitfalls I'd say that we need to I suppose watch out for in terms of leveling up and the just transition is that we just invest in places or things because it's located in the right place or it might create a few more jobs at one particular time. Like everything, I think the key thing that we've got to think about is that if something isn't profitable, it isn't sustainable in of itself. So, you know, we really have to be careful about where we allocate our money and, and ensure that ultimately these um, investments in this leveling up agenda and the just transition are, are targeted into areas that the strategy dictated where those assets were. The strategy dictated the types of jobs created and hopefully that then fits in with where we want those to be but i think that's probably the the key thing that we just need to bear in mind of is you know these things have really got to be long-term sustainable otherwise you, you create a false hope you might have jobs for a few years but then the businesses don't last and then that's not great for anyone yeah, it's the opposite of sustainability, in fact. So if we look Indeed. at another important theme within sustainability, um, implementing new asset classes for biodiversity and biodiversity net gain habitat banks is something that you've spoken about previously. So mm. can you, um, for, for listeners who may not be as familiar with biodiversity risks and opportunities, can you explain what it means um, and a bit more about nature-based solutions that you were mentioning? earlier yeah so look I, I think i've outlined a little bit around the science of it so mm -hmm. biodiversity is um something that has huge potential impact in terms of ecosystem health and and nature uh, just to give you some other stats that your listeners might be interested in 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 the uk for example in the last 10 years we've lost over 40 million birds uh you know we're we're losing plant and um, animal life at a rate not seen since mass extinction. So we fundamentally have to change the way in which we we look at nature. And and actually, I think um, the Descripta report that came out last year was probably the first really seminal reports that put a value on nature. And that's probably the first time people have kind of looked at it that way. And, and I think we do need 
need to now start recognizing nature as a as a valuable public good. So with that, I guess in mind, what we're thinking about with biodiversity is that there's obviously this, this new law that's come in through the Environment Act and actually just coming back to the COP thing is one of the good things that COP probably prompted was the Environment Act to come out around the time that it was on. And within that, there is a requirement for all new planning commissions in this country to include a a biodiversity uplift or a net gain on the site's baseline of at least 10%. Um, So what that means is that for a lot of sites, that would be having to plant woodland meadows and grassland and peatlands and various other things to try to enhance the site's biodiversity post uh, development by at least 10%. And some local authorities are wanting 20, 25% biodiversity uplift. But the problem with that is that depending on where your site is, that that might mean over half of your site needs to be turned over to some sort of biodiversity scheme, which as a property developer, that doesn't necessarily always stack up. So what we've done is try to create these large 25 to 60 hectare habitat banks within the local planning authority that the development would have otherwise have been. But these really large habitat banks, which create the biodiversity credits, which we then sell back to the developers to help them discharge their Environment Act obligations. And what we're doing is really taking the least productive land, essentially non-arable land, and turning that into something great. And on the habitat banks that we're funding right now, we're working really closely with the local planning authority to ensure that we put those habitat banks in the areas that they want and therefore they can then, as part of their town planning, start to ensure that future developments are sited next to or adjacent to that habitat bank, which will also increase the, I suppose, the public utility and public good of of those habitat banks. But overall, with these large habitat banks, we think there's a huge accelerator or multiplier benefit in terms of plant life, bird life, general nature rehabilitation, which we think, um, I, I think, yeah, it's a pretty cool new asset class, but also genuinely impactful and, and something that we've created from scratch uh, with the Environment Bank and that that the founder there, this chap called Professor David Hill, who really is the grandfather of this whole concept of biodiversity net gain. That's really fascinating. And and the way that you're explaining it, it it's, you know, for people who aren't so familiar with this kind of thing, you can see what the benefit will be. Um, so when you're setting up sustainable focus funds, how do you manage investor expectations in terms of the positive impacts that their investments will make? But also, as you were saying earlier, the monetary returns that the fund will make? Well, I think in terms of managing expectations, we are very clear in, in each of the things that we try to invest in, we are really working backwards from the challenges that we're trying to fix. So in terms of the resource efficiency one, we were trying to find ways to use less land, use less water and use less chemicals and pesticides. And within that, we've been able to do full carbon lifecycle analysis to to show what benefits that we can generate. And therefore, we think that's relatively easy to to quantify and something that we can continue to show back and, and demonstrate to our investors. In terms of some of the, the more qualitative things, that's that's an area that we are continuing to work on. Um, so, for example, we talk about digital inclusion in, in the fibre businesses. We are actively working now to try to work on and find ways to better capture the benefits that we're creating. And that's one that I think all investors understand that that's still a very nascent area 
uh, and requires further work. But yeah, I think everyone appreciates that it has benefits, um, but we're now trying to find ways to specifically quantify it. But really across every single asset that we have, we've got defined environmental and societal KPIs that we try to achieve. Uh, and then, yeah, we report at least annually back to our investors around how we're going on those. And and that also from our perspective, yeah, that's how we hold ourselves to account. Yeah, we are we very much think about ourselves as being a fund that creates genuine impact. And so for us, that ability to measure and monitor those those impacts is is hugely important to us. And that's pretty much what gets me out of bed every day is to to know that we're actually doing something better. Now um Earlier on, we talked about that uh, Gresham's chosen Guernsey uh, as the jurisdiction for one of its funds. Can you tell me a bit about why you decided to launch the second sustainable fund in the island? Yeah, look, um, for us, Guernsey was um, obviously where we chose to, to um, raise our first fund, BCF1. And really for us, Guernsey is a, is a place that we feel is very supportive um, of the sorts of things that we're trying to do, they they understand the importance of sustainability. Uh, they really appreciate the sorts of strategies that we're trying to create. So we've always found them to be a, a great jurisdiction, good to work with. They make the time. Um, you know, they there's not. I, I guess in other jurisdictions, it can take a long time to go through the process, but certainly from us and the interactions we've had within Guernsey and and certainly Kerry Olson has made it very easy to work within um, the Guernsey environment. But we found it to be a very supportive environment that moves at the pace that we want. Yeah, I'd say from what you may have gathered from what we've done with Gresham in terms of its growth, we are we're very much out there on a mission. You know, we, we're trying to do things at a pace because certainly in terms of my strategy, you know, we don't have a second to waste. Um, and, you know, we do really feel like going to get it. And, yeah, we've always found them to be good to work with. So, yeah, I'm a very big fan of Guernsey. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. We're delighted. And, I, you know, I agree with you. There isn't a second to waste. Uh, and I'm so pleased to hear that you feel Guernsey's... Um, you know up to speed with that so you know as you know Guernsey um, we consider ourselves to be a leading center of green and sustainable finance um, and we're an integral member of the United Nations financial centers for sustainability and mm. other supranational institutions um, Peter what do you think could be a next step for Guernsey in its own sustainability journey I think what it could do is to start to more of, I suppose, some of the things that even that we're doing it, on the island. Uh, I think it'd be brilliant if the Guernsey government supported the building of a few vertical farms, uh, a few facilities to essentially deal with your waste on the island. Uh, I'm aware that you're looking at some proposals to do some renewables on, on the island as well. So I think that's, for me, I always think about you've got to walk the walk if you're talking the talk and and i think um, that's that's certainly an area that i think every country to be fair um could do more of and and i i think that'd be a great opportunity to become you know really self-sufficient and and uh become carbon neutral or potentially even carbon positive in in terms of um your impact in, in the way that you do everything on the island 
Absolutely. Now, we are almost out of time. So I've just got one final question. Um, and I'd really like to thank you for such a fascinating discussion today. Peter, you sound very um, positive. How do you remain so positive about the future, given the sheer scale of the challenges that need to be addressed? Uh, there's a, a lot of things that we can do individually. Uh, I think one of the most impactful ones uh, is obviously eating a little bit less red meat. Uh, there's a great study by a scientist called Marco Springman and some of his colleagues that looked at the benefits of reducing or actually changing to a Mediterranean diet. And um, yeah, he thought it could be something upwards of $31 trillion per year in terms of benefits. 30 trillion of that is largely from healthcare benefits from moving away from red meats. And then there's another trillion per annum related to environmental benefits. So I guess that's one easy one. So eating a bit less red meat. Uh, I've also been doing intermittent fasting uh, for about 10 years now. And that really, I think, has big benefits in terms of healthcare. Uh, yeah, there are some great studies around intermittent fasting protocols being used in mice that had cancerous cells. Uh, and within a couple of months, there's those mice that had cancer of those cancer cells have been completely eradicated. So, yeah, that's something that I think that we can do uh, individually. I also think there's things that we can do around our clothing. So secondhand clothes, try to do that as much as possible. Or where you're going out to an event, rent something. Yeah, there's a great business that I'm involved in called My Wardrobe HQ, and they're all about fashion rental. Um, and I got involved in that business because actually they told me about this little dirty secret in the fashion industry that I'd not heard about, which is essentially end of season clothing tends to actually get either burnt or landfilled because the high end brands don't want that to ever come back out into the secondary market. So yeah, fashion rental is, is quite a, a simple one. I think that we can all use to, to try to help, um, fast fashion is unfortunately very, very impactful and, uh, yeah, I think even down to a, a T-shirt can potentially take up to 30,000 litres of water if it's been flood farm cotton. So we need to look at the clothing that we wear and, and try to use and, and use secondhand where we can. Uh, personally, I've also just bought my first electric vehicle. So that at least makes me feel a little bit less guilty about using the, the vehicle in, in town. Uh, and, and I think that's something that we can use. And then I use public transport wherever possible. So they're simple bits. Um, one of the things that I've done that, I think it's uh, really interesting personally, but also can be quite impactful as I've, I've personally invested a lot of time and, and money. I've personally backed about 20 odd early stage sustainability companies, um, many of which are doing the sorts of things like my wardrobe I mentioned before, uh, Bauer Collective that does some great sustainable products and other business AI drivers does port automation, which has a big impact on CO2 emissions. So it's trying to find these early stage businesses that can really have impact. And in often case, um, yeah, everyone can at least offer time, if not money into helping those businesses. And then the other final one that um, I've recently done is I planted a, a Miyawaki forest in my, in my home, which we basically planted about 600 trees in, in quite a small patch of the garden. And that's yeah something that has huge benefits. So this, Japanese botanist Akira Miyawaki came up with this about in the 70s. And yeah, this has, it grows 10 times faster. It has, I think, 30 or 40 times better impact in terms of carbon capture and 100 times better impact in terms of biodiversity gain compared to typical forests. So it's all of those little things. And I guess generally, personally, I think 
we've got to take a view around what can we do even that one little small step that's better is better than nothing at all and i, and I think this overall philosophy that i try to i guess talk about more is that often people that perhaps don't do everything perfectly get kind of um there's a bit of a tall poppy syndrome or people will you know, tear them down for not doing everything perfectly but actually you, no one's perfect. I think we just have to understand that we have to be open-minded and we just have to try to do some things better and that will allow us to do that small incremental thing better and then hopefully over time we can start to embed more sustainable actions across all of our lives. So hopefully that's some, I guess, some ideas on, on personally. Uh, your, your question around how do I stay positive? Look, I, I think um, on that front, I'm, I'm really fortunate. So I, I'm involved personally as a judge and mentor at Cambridge Uni's um, CISL accelerator program. So that's all about really young, bright things, bringing forward ideas to help some of the big sustainability challenges we face. And, and I am always amazed at the, the breadth and depth of the ideas that come forward in, in accelerators like that. I'm also involved in this thing called the Clean Tech Challenge, which is a university-based um, clean tech competition and I've been doing that for a number of years and we typically see applicants from all around the world. And again, yeah, this is the best and brightest all totally focused on trying to fix these problems. So I think being able to see that um, is a really big part of how I say positive. I think also I'm just starting to see now across my peer group, investors, uh, the people that are out there doing, I guess, is that they're starting to recognize that you can't keep investing in the same things anymore. Like that just doesn't, and it's not going to change what we need. And I think I've seen now a bit of a step shift in that investors, investors in my fund, for example, are starting to see that actually they can make a really positive choice in, in doing something to actually invest in things like sustainable infrastructure or other um worthy recipients of capital to actually fundamentally make impact happen. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, currently my mission, yeah, the thing that we always talk about is yeah, we're trying to intentionally scale impactful infrastructure assets that are good for investors because they are good for people and the planet. And that, that mission probably wouldn't have been possible before, but I think, yeah, we're just at this point now where we are able to do that. We can do good investment because they're good for people and the planet. And then I guess I'll just leave you with is that like I, I genuinely feel like you know, what I'm doing, what we're doing as a team is yeah, we're on a cause. And I think everything that we're doing, I'm doing now personally and professionally at, at Gresham House, it feels like that we might just actually be starting to be able to make a difference and maybe okay. Uh, I think we just now need to get all of your, all of your listeners and, and anyone that will listen that, yeah, we've just got to go and start rounding everyone up uh, and getting everyone on this mission because I think, yeah, this is something that can't be done individually. I think collectively we all have the ability to really make change happen and, and that's hopefully the thing that people come away from having listened to this that, yeah, we've just got to go out there and do it now. Uh, yeah, I saw a great article where David Attenborough recently said that actually it's not too late uh, and I think we're just really at that point where we just have to do something now but yeah, we, we finally have some glimmers of hope of great things that we can do to really make a difference. So I guess leaving with, yeah, let's get everyone involved and, and please do help everyone at the Great Guernsey podcast and, and beyond. But thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Peter, for your time and your insights today. Um, it has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I've learned so much. Um, and thanks also to you for listening to today's podcast. Now, we've got quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast channel. And you can check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love it if you left a review or a comment. We always love to get your feedback. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and wearegernsey.com. You can interact with us on Twitter at gsygreenfinance and at wearegernsey. You can hear more relating to news and developments coming out of Guernsey's finance industry by checking out the We Are Guernsey podcast on your preferred platform. We've also got links to Peter and Gresham House's social media in our show notes. So check those out to hear more from them. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast.